Well, good morning once again. I am uh, delighted today because we have a guest speaker. And uh, what is so great about our guest speaker is that he uh, was a chemical engineer here in Beaumont back in 1987 when he received his call to ministry. And uh, his name is Bob Johnson, and him and his wife Susan are visiting our church this morning. Uh, before, um, after he got his calling, he served a number of churches and over 30 years worth of ministry. Uh, he finished out his time in ministry at Chapelwood United Methodist Church in Houston, uh, serving there for about 18 years. And um, I know Bob because when I was fresh out of seminary, he was my mentor, along with a number of other pastors that you may or may not know. One of them was Alicia Besser. And so I've known Bob a long time. You're going to enjoy what he has to share with you today. So won't you please give him a warm welcome. Thank you, Rick. Good morning. I can't see you, but you can see me, right? There's a scary thought. Give me a second to get all my paraphernalia here. Here we go. Well, as Rick said, um, my wife Susan, she's over there somewhere. Where, Susan, where? There she is in the back corner. Uh, we were um, members of Wesley for the six years that we lived in Beaumont. Um, we moved here in November of 1981. So we actually joined the church back when it was North End. Um, Dennis, do you remember it, North End? Yeah. Um, and then it moved on to Dowlin, and that's where it was when we... Uh, when we left in 1987. So uh, we had, th we have three kids. Two of them were born here in Beaumont, were baptized in this church. And um, so in many ways, I've always considered Wesley to be my home church. Um, and it's good to be home today to be sharing a message with you. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, this is actually my uh, third time to preach at Wesley. The last time I preached was here, was 32 years ago. Uh, it was kind of the tradition in those days that if you announced a call to the ministry, you, you were going to test it out and stand in a pulpit and preach. And um, that was at Dowlin. But I remember the first time I preached at Wesley, I was the lay leader. And it was Laity Sunday. You still have Laity Sunday? Um, and I was invited by the then pastor, Bill Armstrong, to preach on Laity Sunday. And when I look back on that sermon now, it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, I was, it seemed like everything I knew about the faith, I had somehow had to say that in that sermon. And I, so I went over here for a while, and I went over here for a while, and then I was over here for a while. It was awful. So I promise I will try to do a better job today. Um, I want to talk to you about something I call the Genesis Project. And in many ways, it's... The same message as the children's sermon we heard a minute ago, only longer. And I don't have candy to give out. There are donuts back there, though. You can get donuts. Before I tell you about the Genesis Project, let me read some scriptures for you. First one, not surprisingly, comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Oh, there, it's up on the screen. That's great. Why don't you read it out loud with me? Can we do that? So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. 
Then I want to fast forward to the Gospel of John. This is chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. And this is um, sometimes called Jesus' great high priestly prayer. This is right before he is rested in the garden and he's praying, praying to God. And this is what Jesus says. We're actually, as we read this scripture, we're reading Jesus' prayer. Read it with me. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me. Because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. So let me give you a little background to what I want to share with you this morning about the Genesis Project. 2012, in fact, the last time I was at Wesley was in 2012, the 100th anniversary celebration. And uh, not long after I got back from that, back to Houston, I had sort of a spiritual crisis. By this point in time, I had been in the ministry for 25 years and I came to realize I did not have good, what I consider an intellectually satisfying answers to two very, very important questions. The first question that I realized I couldn't answer very well is this question. What is the good news? You know, the word gospel is an old English word that means good news. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? If somebody asked you that question, somebody outside the faith asked you that question, would you have a good answer? Well, you know, most people say, well, the good news is Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, for Jesus died for our sins. The problem I had was that answer, to come up with that answer, you will only need the New Testament. You don't need the Old Testament at all. And I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible is three-quarters Old Testament. <laughs> and I'm asking myself, well, if the good news, if, if, if the good news that God wants us to share is simply that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, why did he give us so much of the Bible that we apparently don't need? Because <laughs> you don't need to come up with that statement of the good news. So that was my problem. You see why, why that was a problem for me? Keep in mind, I was an engineer. Engineers think different than other people. The second question I had, the second thing that was causing this spiritual crisis was the question, why did Jesus tell us to go and make disciples? You know, if you think about, this, this is one of the last things he said. If you think about all the things that he could have said, why did he say go and make disciples? Why are disciples so important in God's economy? 
Well, people say, well, we go and make disciples. You know, the mission, mission of the Methodist Church, go and make disciples for the transformation of the world. Why? Well, because Jesus told us to in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and so forth. You know that passage. But why did Jesus say that? And again, I knew that whatever the answer was, it had to take account of the Old Testament because that's the only Bible Jesus knew. So here I was, 25 years in my ministry as a pastor, and I was struggling to come up with answers to these two very, very basic, very, very simple questions. What is the good news, and why are we called to go and make disciples? That spiritual crisis launched a years-long quest to discover the answer, which I found in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. I ended up writing it all down so that I wouldn't forget it in a book that I call The Genesis Project. And that's what I want to share with you this morning, parts of that. I discovered that God answered those two questions, what is the good news and why are we called to make disciples, in the very first chapters of the Bible. You don't have to read all the way through to figure out what it is that God wants for us in the first place. Furthermore, I discovered that when you understand The Genesis Project, you discover that the Old Testament and the New Testament link together in a new way that for me made all kinds of sense. I discovered that when you understand God's Genesis Project, you find yourself deeply rooted in the very heart of God because it goes all the way back to in the beginning. So I decided to capture all that in and I began to share it, and I began to teach it when I was serving at Chapelwood. And people would say, you know, you know, that makes a lot of sense. How come we never heard that before? I don't know. But I want to share it with at least parts of it with you today. So let's dig in. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you all know that story. In the beginning, you know, you, you've heard that before. But a person who would, have, who would have lived, a person living at the time that was written down, and who would have heard that story would have realized, because they would have lived in a time when there were lots of gods and so forth, and they would have realized that in telling that story, this creator God, this God who would later name, be named Yahweh, this creator God was creating for himself a dwelling place, a place for his presence, a temple, if you will. But it was not a temple made out of brick and stone. It wasn't a building. It was a temple that was all heaven and earth. That's where this God was going to dwell. And they also would have known, and they would have found echoes in this story, that what gods do in their temples is they put an image of themselves. Say so they, make, they, make uh, they make themselves real, present. Now, the images that the other gods uh, had were made out of stone or wood. Uh, they were statues. There's a wonderful story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Anybody recognize who this guy is in the picture? Who is it, Rick? Dagon. Yeah, you cheated because you heard this sermon already. All right, I'm going to put you further on the spot. Who was Dagon? Yes, he was the god of the Philistines, you know, Goliath and, and that group. 
So there's this story in 1 Samuel 5 where the Philistines and the Israelites are going at it. They're always going at it in the Bible. And the Philistines won in this particular battle and they captured the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it to the temple of Dagon. And in the story, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Dagon's temple, and there's a picture of Dagon. And Dagon keeps falling over. And so they come back the next morning and they pick him back. And every time he falls over, a piece of him breaks off. And so they pick him back up and they come back the next day and he's fallen on his face again. And finally, at the end of the story, his head breaks off. You can see that there. It's a great funny story. Read it, 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 5. But for my purposes this morning, it's an illustration of how in ancient times, people uh, made temples for their gods and they put an image of that God, to make that God real, they put an image in the temple. So reading the story of Genesis that we just read, you find out that God also makes an image. But God's image is not made out of, the, the, the image that God puts in his temple of heaven and earth is not made out of stone or wood. God's image in God's temple is made out of flesh. It's you. And it's me. What does that scripture say that we read? God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created. That's the key word, the idea of being created in God's image. We are placed in God's temple, which is not a building, it's heaven and earth, to do what images do, are supposed to do, to bear and reflect the God whose temple it was. So our job, being created in the image of God, is to bear and reflect the nature, the image of Yahweh God, creator God. So that's the first revelation I got from the Genesis Project. You and I and every other human being are created in the image of God. And our job, the reason we were created, is to bear and reflect God's image in God's temple, which is heaven and earth. There's this um, Episcopalian bishop named um, N.T. Wright, and he wrote, well, he writes like a book a day, but he said this, that image, the image that we're created in, of God's image, is a vocation. It's a calling. It's the call to be an angled mirror, reflecting God's wise order into the world and the praises of all creation back to the creator. That is what an authentically human life looks like. When we live according to the way that we were created, we are living an authentically human life. And when we live authentically, the restlessness that many of us experience in our hearts suddenly finds its rest. It finds its peace. You know, this is why, do y'all do do teach the Ten Commandments here once in a while? You know, once in a while. You all have heard of the Ten Commandments? They're kind of like God's top ten list. They actually appear twice in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. The second of the Ten Commandments, you've heard this, thou shalt not, it always sounds better if you say it in King James, thou shalt not make a graven image. Why is that such a big deal for God, that, that we not make graven images, that it made the top ten list? Well, because God doesn't need another image to bear and reflect him, that's our job. That's why you were created, that's why I was created. God doesn't need any statues or images or whatever to reflect his image, that's why we're created. 
So a fundamental truth, the first fundamental truth of the Genesis Project is that you and I are created in the image of God to bear and reflect God's image in God's temple, which is heaven and earth, the world in which we live. Okay, but what is God's image <laughs> that we're supposed to bear and reflect? Well, again, the book of Genesis gives us a great clue. In fact, that starting in the first three verses of the Bible, it answers that question. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And then what happened? There was light. So in, that, in those first three verses, you can see what later theologians came to call the Trinity. God created the generator. The, uh, th that's God the Father. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Uh, in the children's sermon, we heard about, you know, part of the role of, is protecting. That's what the Spirit is doing, overseeing, protecting, hovering over the waters. And then, now this one is harder to see unless you know the New Testament. God said, let there be light. In the Gospel of John, um, you've heard this one too. In the beginning was the Word. What Word? That Word. The, God, the, the Word that God spoke. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things like light and all the other things God is about to create in Genesis. All things came into being through him. And then in this great verse that is really John's Christmas story, verse 14, he says, and the word, what word? That word became flesh and dwelled among us. So the first three verses of Genesis, we're talking about the beginning of the Bible, reveals that God's nature is triune. God exists as a, as a community, one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's this incredible oneness, this incredible connectedness, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father. You, you can draw all these lines and, and the way they're connected and experience wholeness and community within the very nature of God. Within God's nature, remember, our job is to reflect God's nature. Within God's nature is this experience of oneness, intimacy, community, connection, wholeness. So God is the perfect model of oneness and intimacy. And our job is to reflect that. The second scripture we read this morning from uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, the last verse of that prayer I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus says, um, I pray that they may be, what? Did you catch the word? One. That they may be in you as I am in you. That they may be in me as you are in me. That they may be one with each other. If you think about what Jesus knew those disciples were about to experience after his crucifixion, and he's praying for them, what is he praying? that they be one, that they be together, that they be strong, that they be connected. And then he says, I don't think we read this part, but he also says in that prayer, and I'm not just praying for them, I'm praying for those that are going to come after. Same prayer, 
that they may be one. So basically, Jesus in that great high priestly prayer, the prayer he prays right before he's arrested and crucified, he's praying for the fulfillment of the Genesis project. He's praying, God, may you make it so that they live up to the purpose for which you created them, that they may bear and reflect your in the image of oneness. And the third revelation of the Genesis project, the first one is that we're created in God's image to bear and reflect that image. The second is that we are to bear and reflect God's nature of oneness. The third one is that we are to bear and reflect God's image of oneness in four key relationships. We are to bear and reflect God's image of oneness, connection, wholeness, intimacy, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another. That shape, oh, did you notice what that shape is I just drew? It's a cross. In our relationship with creation, if that cross is anchored in the ground, which Jesus' cross was, it reflects our relationship with creation. And when your relationship with God is in good shape, when your relationship with other people is in good shape, when your relationship with the creation, you feel at one with creation, that's in good shape, how do you feel about yourself? See, even wholeness, oneness with ourselves. That's all God's original purpose, will, and intent for us. Sadly, however, we know from experience, and the Bible tells us, something went horribly wrong. All of that that I just described, you can pull out of Genesis 1 and 2, but when you get to Genesis 3, what happens in Genesis 3? That's called the Right, the fall. <laughs> Adam and Eve, the story of the fall. Um, and ever in, 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 in the story of Adam and Eve, they, the, the serpent tempts them to not only disobey God, but to stop trusting God, to really come to believe that they, they, could, be, they could do a better job of being God, of being boss, than, than God could. And um, God says, don't eat the fruit. What do they do? Eat the fruit. Exactly. Who said that? Very good. Exactly. Good answer. And did you, did you notice, I can, if we had time, I could show you how all four of those key relationships that I just went over, all four of them get broken in the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Obviously, their relationship with God gets broken when they disobey him. But even the relationship with each other. Do you know, when, when God discovers there's a problem and God shows up, and, you know, he says, have you eaten of the fruit I told you not to eat of? And Adam says, yes, sir, we did. I'm sorry. I apologize. I repent. That's what, that's what Adam says, right? No! <laughs> Adam says, the woman! What do you think that did for their relationship? He's sleeping on the couch tonight. And in case that doesn't work... The woman that you gave me. She gave it to me. And I ate of it. <laughs> so there's relationship with God is broken. Relationship with one another is broken. Later we discover, and if you keep reading in that story, you discover, okay, no, you used to be that they would just pick their food off of trees. All their food, it grew on trees, just pick it off. They didn't have to work for it. Later they had to work for their food. He had to start tilling the ground. And not only that, the ground was not going to cooperate. The ground was going to produce thorns and thistles. Any of you garden? Anybody garden? Dennis, what happens if you don't tend to your garden? What grows? Weeds. They take over. 
So Adam now, the creation itself is what he has to work against. And if you mess up in your relationship with God and you know it, and you mess up in your relationship with your spouse or your best friend and you know it, you mess up your relationship with creation and you know it, how do you feel about yourself? Terrible. Guilt. Shame. That song we sang this morning about fear. These are all signs of brokenness in those four key relationships. But you know, at the very end of the Bible, how am I doing on time, Rick? Wrap this up. Uh, At the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22 is this wonderful image of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and God dwelling with his people. You know, there's a wonderful, uh, very important image. I call it the most important story in the Old Testament you've probably never heard of. You remember what that one was, Rick? Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel lived during this time when the Babylonians were... um, Uh, taking Israel into captivity and they ended up destroying the temple. And Ezekiel is asking God, why are you letting, why is this, how can this possibly be happening? This is your holy city. This is your holy temple. How can these pagans be succeeding in destroying what is yours? And God ends up giving Ezekiel a vision that answers the question, why is this happening? You know, prior to this, the whole Old Testament is a story of uh, idolatry, which is the opposite of loving God, oneness with God, of injustice toward one another, which is the opposite of oneness with one another. All this has been going on, and Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of God, the presence of God, leaving the temple. It left. You know, Elvis has left the building. Well, God has left the temple. And this sets up this longing for the people of God, people of God are longing for God's glory to return. They, uh, they come back from exile in Babylon and they rebuild the temple, but there's never a vision of God's glory coming to take up residence in the temple. Not until Jesus comes. And the Gospel of John again says, we have seen his glory and so at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, there's this wonderful vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. God, you don't need a temple anymore, it says, because God is, God is, the whole city is the temple. God is present with his people. One of the great discoveries I made as I was doing this searching for answers about my spiritual crisis, I discovered that in the New Testament, the word save to save, like in, in Titus 3.5, Paul writes, he saved us, not because of righteous things we did, but because of his mercy. The, the Greek word that is translated save is the word sozo. Sounds like bozo, but with an S. Say it, it's fun to say. Sozo. And that word in Greek means to rescue, to make whole, but it also means to heal. And we sang about Jesus being our Savior. That's another way of saying he's our sozoer. <laughs> he's our healer. He is the return of God's glory, and the purpose that God came back is to sozo us, to heal us of all the ways that we're broken and our relationship with him and our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, 
and our relationship with ourself. That's the Genesis project, that we would live, we would bear and reflect God's image in God's temple of heaven and earth, that we would bear and reflect God's image of oneness in all those four dimensions. And Jesus came to heal us of our brokenness so that we could do that. Jesus came to fulfill what has been God's intent and purpose for us since the beginning. And you know, well, let me just say this and then I'll come back to that statement. Why did Jesus tell us to go and make disciples? Because disciples are the means by which God has chosen to spread the blessings of the Genesis Project, the oneness. Now, personally, I wouldn't have done it this way if I was God. I know you. I don't know all of you. I know Dennis, but I know some of you. And I know me. I wouldn't have left you in charge of my project that had been my project since the beginning. I wouldn't have left me in charge. I think one of the greatest miracles, underpreached miracles in the Bible is the ascension of Jesus when he goes back to heaven in Acts chapter 1 and he leaves the disciples in charge. I wouldn't have done that. Would you? Would you? Anyway, I wouldn't have done that. But God did. That's why he said, go and make disciples. Go and make people through whom I can spread the blessings of oneness, which have been, has been my desire since the beginning. Now, knowing that, knowing what, that we're created in the image of God and why we were created in the image of God and as disciples that we're to spread the blessings of oneness, knowing that, when you think about the arguments we get into in the church, what color the choir robes are going to be, what color the carpet, what kind of donuts we're going to have. Are we going to have donuts? Um, we're going to invite the preacher back. <laughs> kind of makes all that stuff seem kind of minor, doesn't it? When you think about what our actual call and our actual vocation is. My friends, there is no greater calling in life than the one that we have, all of us together, as disciples of Jesus, to be bearers and reflectors of God's image, to bring oneness. Just think about what you saw on the news this morning. If you check the paper or the internet or watch TV or whatever, just think of all the ways there's brokenness in the world. <laughs> think about all the ways there's brokenness in the Methodist church in the last couple of weeks we've been hearing about it on the news. Our job is to be, as Jesus was, healers, to be sozoers, to bring oneness into the world. And that's your job this week, my friends, and it has been your job since in the beginning. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for this reminder this morning of your Genesis project, that ever since in the beginning, it has been your purpose, your will, your intent for us as those created in your image to bear and reflect to the world your oneness, your community, your connection, your wholeness. And thank you that Jesus came to heal us of all the ways that we are broken. We sang this morning of our brokenness and how Jesus is the healer of our brokenness. So God, as we leave this place this morning, help us. Help us to live according to our calling. Help us to be fulfillers of the Genesis Project, to bring not more brokenness, not more argument, not more dissent, 
not more opinions. <laughs> Help us to bring oneness into your temple, which is heaven and earth. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.